The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald and you're listening to Blethered on the Big Light Network. My guest is writer and journalist Craig McLean. In between being the tour manager for the Proclaimers to hanging about with his pal Stevie Nicks at Fleetwood Mac at our home in Malibu, Craig McLean has led a whirlwind life and career. Perhaps the best example I've ever come across is somebody who made his passion into his career. We talk about starting out as a gig reviewer in Scotland before moving down to London to work at the iconic The Face magazine. We take a look at his freelance work as a top journalist, which led to him living in Phil Collins' pocket while writing his biography. And Craig tells me about flying in Jay-Z's private jet and stealing sugar from five-star hotels. If you enjoy this episode, feel free to share it or even leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a great help. This episode is brought to you by Debt Experts Don't Fret About Debt. If you're struggling with debt and you would like a free chat with an impartial advisor to discuss your options or to see how you can lower your monthly repayments towards debt, then visit don'tfretaboutdebt.net forward slash blethered. You can also listen to my episode with Don't Fret About Debt Senior Debt Advisor Tommy Gallagher where we discuss taking back control of your debt and the various solutions available. Don't Fret About Debt offer all statutory debt solutions in Scotland helping you to make an informed choice. So take the first step to dealing with your debt today. Free advice is also available from the Money Advice Service. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it. Cheers. What do you think is the most famous thing to come out of school? You are the stone of destiny. <laughs> <laughs> or do you like to be in the background or on the periphery? <laughs> Thank God it's coming back to Perth because the centre of Perth has been hollowed out. So at least we've got a lump of granite back there to bring folk back to the fair city. <laughs> yeah, um, since kind of looking at your work and career now, I'm genuinely fascinated. I'm trying to figure out if you made a career out of your biggest passion and hobby or if your biggest passion and hobby tended, if that was a construct of of what your career ended up being? I'd say it was the hobby first. I was always into music, courtesy of my mum, who played music, still plays music constantly around the house in every room, radio on, records on, ABBA, country music, every bit of uh, shonky 70s daytime radio pop you could think of. Right. There's that really good new book out by Will Hodgkinson called In Perfect Harmony. Will was a really good music critic for The Times and it's his history of the underappreciated sides of 70s music. Not punk, not disco, not glam. It's the brotherhood of man. See, anybody, the people that know me, and it's probably become a bit of a running joke, when you say Daba, like my ears have totally sort of spiked up there is that was that the music they would have been playing just uh, like the kind of the ones that you listed or was he exposed to anything else that kind of would have piqued your interest I was exposed to nothing cool 
It was all entirely uh, middle of the road pop stuff. I mean, it's always the best. Exactly. And I say this to my mum now. You know, my mum was born in 1942. So she was the perfect age to be a Beatles fan. She was 21 when the Beatles' first single came oh, out. Nice. She didn't like the Beatles. Really? She never bought any records. I was like, Mum, how come you've not got these beautiful you know, <laughs> singles in the house that I could have had slash nicked? Aye. But no, for her, she liked Elvis. And, you know, that, that way that Scottish folk lean towards everything from Sydney Divine to Jim Reeves and all that stuff to proper American country. Aye. That was more her thing. Never never the Beatles or the Stones. So I had to find the cool stuff uh, off my own back. So uh, that, that took a while. That's I, think, I feel like that's the same with a lot of the music that I was exposed to because I'm into everything. Other people you just listed there, but then I, I'm a big Don Williams fan because of my grandpa and my mum. But then having looked into it, I'm like, he wasn't a significant in America at all like he was he was really big over here yeah there's Elvis and all that but none of my family were really into the Beatles or I'm a massive Beatles fan and it's funny how you do take these sort of uncool music influences and you'll kind of love them but then you have to go and find like find your own stuff oh, yeah you you, you disavow that stuff in your uh, thrusting late teens and 20s because you need to be seen as cool and then you come back to it later in life and go, actually, see, who am I kidding? That's I, the stuff I really like. See, I was a total wee weirdo. Like, I was just, I was so unapologetically into all these things. I don't know where, I mean, apart from the fact they're fucking amazing, I don't know where I get the ABBA stuff because <laughs> there's not really anybody in my family that would ever put them on, whereas, like, there's a switch in me if I'm on a night out or something and I hear something. And I wish there wasn't it because it's a bit of fucking ready when Dancing Queen comes on. And I'm like, I can't, I can't hide this. Uh, how much I'm loving this. Um, when going to uni, Edinburgh Uni, 1990. <coughs> yeah, I went to Edinburgh Uni in 1986 to 1990. Great time to be right, at okay. university. Um, and I, I wanted, to, I wanted to be a journalist. Uh, I didn't really have any finessed views of what that might be. I knew I liked music and I wrote about music for the school newspaper at Perth Academy. But I knew what to be a journalist and the guy from Edinburgh Uni came to our school and uh, I knew what to go to Edinburgh. I'd been to, I'd been to visit Glasgow Uni in Edinburgh Uni. The day I came to Glasgow, when you come in from Perth, you pass those old big gas canisters out in the motorway right. and it was raining, obviously. I thought, <laughs> I don't like Glasgow. I'm scared of Glasgow. <laughs> I'm just a wee guy from Schoon. Um... Went to Edinburgh, it was a sunny day. Uh, I managed to get a pair of Espadrille shoes that I've been looking for, and I managed to get a German remix of Paul Harcastle's 19, Neunzen, Ninnen and the Neunzen, that I've been looking for as well that I couldn't find in Perth. Found that in, I think, Ripping Records on the Bridges in Edinburgh. I thought, oh, Edinburgh's great, I'm coming here. <laughs> that, First impressions. That was, there was no <clears throat> academic uh, finessing of why I wanted to go to Edinburgh. It was, it was that basic. It was weather and music and clothes. And the, when the guy came from Edinburgh Uni to school, I said, oh, I want to be a journalist. Should I do English at Edinburgh? And he went, no, you should do politics and sociology. And I went, all right then. <laughs> and literally just said, all right then, and did it. Didn't know what sociology was, still don't. Uh, hadn't any interest in politics, still do have an interest in it. That was kind of catalyzed by uni. Yeah. But literally, I just took that guy's direction at face value and did it luckily both those su subjects weren't very heavily timetabled mm. so i could uh dick around at the student newspaper to my heart's content and edinburgh had a good student newspaper that was another de decided factor for me in going there what's his explanation for politics and sociology 
Uh, I'm still wondering that uh, question. Jamie, uh, he maybe had a wee quota to fill. Is that, <laughs> here's an impressive wee guy. He'll do what I tell him. I mean, I guess maybe he thought, oh, yeah, he wants to be a hard news journalist. Uh, he wants to be do, be a political journalist. And in fact, quite a few folk in my class did do that. I mean, Tom Bradby, who is, who's the News at 10 anchor, now was in my class. Oh, right. Douglas Alexander, who ended up as a cabinet minister in the yeah, Blair and Brown wow. governments, was in my class. Emma Simpson, who's the BBC's Home Affairs editor, she was my flatmate. She was on that class. Uh, Graham Wilson, who was my, I was his best man. He went on to be a political correspondent for the Sun, the Mail, and the Telegraph. Despite those right wing papers, I do still like him. And then, <laughs> and then became David Cameron's one of his spin doctors. Wow! So few folk in my class did become quote unquote proper journalists, yeah. political journalists. But the use to me was that it helped me construct essays, arguments in essays, because mm-hmm. they were very essay based courses. So. A lot of the uh, my studying was about how to construct an argument and how to construct a long piece of writing, and I ended up specialising in ethnic nationalism in the Soviet Union and the former Eastern Europe in 1989 slash 90 as the Berlin Wall came down and all these countries in the former Eastern Bloc threw off the shackles of communism. So it was like real life, real time reporting as for my studies. So that did help with journalism. That's uh, I mean it's quite a. Say that again, what your focus was on. <laughs> Ethnic nationalism in Soviet Union and the former Eastern Europe. Ethnic nationalism, right, okay. A nice light sort of subject. <laughs> Do you know, that's something I've never met anybody because I've got a real fascination with the Cold War, sort of pre-Cold War, Cold War times, and then in the final days, but then the sort of remnants of it as they kind of tried to move into democracy, the whole perestroika thing, you know, that I find... Utterly fascinating for anybody who's not as intelligent as us. I'll explain to them. That's a joke, by the way. Perestroika. So basically, was that when they were sort of saying, we want to try and hold on to communism, but we have to bring in facets of democracy in order to kind of appease people's desires to break free from it? Yeah, Gorbachev brought in perestroika, which translates loosely as freedom, I believe, and glasnost, which translates loosely as openness. Mm. And so he realised that the Soviet Union had to adapt or die. Uh, Unfortunately for the hardline communists, it adapted so much that it fell apart. And the Russian Federation came into being, and all the sat all the Eastern Bloc countries individually all broke away. And a lot of the reasons they broke away were for reasons of ethnic nationalism, whether it was religious-based nationalism or ethnicity. So the Ossetians within Georgia didn't like being part of Ossetia, part of being Georgia, yeah. so they fought against Georgia. Uh, the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis are still fighting now. Uh, so it was all about these people throwing off the yoke of the Soviet rule by embracing their own ethnicity. Mm. Uh, sometimes it split apart the countries, which is what happened in the Czech Republic, um, Czechoslovakia as it was, uh, but sometimes it became the, the uniting force that enabled them to break free of uh, the Soviet Union. Have you ever seen the film uh, either Good Night Lenin or Goodbye Lenin? I've seen that. Absolutely like, love it. I only watched it recently. Somebody told me ages ago, again, for anybody that hasn't seen it, it's a guy that was in, in Glorious Bastards. He plays the German sniper in, in Inglorious Bastards and it's like his mum is like proper hardcore committed to the party and during a riot or a scuffle, she ends up in a coma and she's in a coma what's it, for like two years or something and by that point, East Germany's moved, basically Germany's been reunified and all that. But it's fascinating stuff. See, that that answers one of the questions I had because, and we'll go on to discuss like some of the features and that that you're doing, or some of the features we've been doing for a long time. And they're so detailed and they're so, this sounds like a total, like a total, um, like I'm not doing credit to the quality of your work. But when I was read some of the ones I've read, I'm like, this is a, 
podcast in in word form, and I know that's bit like fucking long form article came long before this daft wee medium did. But what I mean by that is it covers, it takes you to so many places, and there be there was things say I was reading in the sort of first wee bit. My way of thinking was completely different by by the end, if that makes sense. As if like I have gone on this mad winding journey, so. Right, that makes complete sense as to, to how that's happened. The student paper, when you were working there, did did that just give you a sense of this is what I want to do and, and writing things I want to write about instead of within the confines of politics or, or social commentary? Yeah, Edinburgh's uh, <clears throat> imaginatively titled Student Newspaper. I think it's just <laughs> called Student. Uh, I was a music reviewer and then a, the music editor and then the uh, joint editor of the whole paper. And then me and a pal... Uh, completely used and abused the universities and the unions' uh, facilities to launch our own music paper, which we called Substance, after a recently released at the time New Order compilation. And we wrote that, printed that up, distributed it all over Scotland, took the the union's van up to Aberdeen, through to Glasgow, Dundee, Stirling, anywhere that had record shops where we could dump copies of our free paper. You know, broke the van by putting petrol in it instead of diesel. <laughs> you know, all, all this nonsense. But we didn't know any better. And that naivety and enthusiasm got us a long way. Got us to London for the first time. We came down to meet record companies to try and... Uh, arm wrestle advertising out of them uh, for our magazine, our paper. Remember, we got an early Goodbye Mr. McKenzie uh, advert because they were signed to Capitol Records at the time. So they, it was their major label moment. Didn't happen. Happened mm. for Shirley Manson, obviously, but didn't happen for the band. But that got us in record company offices for the first time. And we were just wee chancers uh, who didn't know any better and therefore didn't know what not to do. And we just literally knocked on doors asked a couple of PRs that we'd never met, oh, could we stay with you when we come down? And they were probably thinking, eh, all right then, <laughs> weird, but fine. So that <clears throat> gave us gave me a taste for wanting to do uh, music journalism and doing my own magazine. And it just snowballed from there. And while I was at uni, I was, I was writing for Cut, which was a then legendary music uh, magazine published in Edinburgh that was a brilliant uh, place. The editor there, Alistair Mackay, was a real important figure to me. He then was at Scotland on Sunday, and after university, he asked me to take over from him as a rock critic for Scotland on Sunday. So not long out of uni, I was going round Scotland reviewing gigs every week, mainly through in Glasgow, because there was more shows here than there was Mm. in Edinburgh, where I was still living at the time. So that was me reviewing everything from Smashing Pumpkins to Nirvana to Cliff Richard. I'd review everything that was going on that week. Uh, Sometimes it was a bit of a a grind, but again, it was a hugely important learning process, Mm. an apprenticeship for me. What were the types of venues that you'd have been going to Glasgow at at that point? Oh, it was King Tut's, Barrowlands, SEC... uh, 13th note maybe once or twice but those were the three main Glasgow ones I mean the ABC and the Hydro obviously weren't existing at that Aye. time but I was going up to Aberdeen occasionally to the Lemon Tree and the Exhibition Centre I think that was open at the time occasionally I'd get back up to Perth I think I reviewed the Roubettes in Perth right. which I took my mum to because that was again a, a nice circle back to the easy yeah. listening stuff that she played when I was wee so yeah it was a great grounding for me and I learned a lot working for Scotland on Sunday because that was obviously stuffed full of proper grown up journalists doing proper grown up journalism yeah. it sounds to me um, I mean correct me if I'm wrong in this sort of musing but it sounds to me as if being surrounded by these people these proper journalists it's given you this idea of the structure and rigidity but 
having come through in a different way into your sort of sphere of journalism, and you were you mentioned there that you were kind of just learning as you went along and chancing it. Do you think that that has just been this perfect blend of making up as you go along and coming not making up as you go along, but coming up with your own sort of ways or methods or or kind of doing things and without let's just say you'd went to study music journalism they could have said, well, here's how you do it, and it's A, B, and C, and here's the sort of handbook, and you might not have deviated for that. I think that's right. You know, There was a journalism course at Stirling Uni at the time, which I did consider applying for, and I thought, ach, Stirling's too wee, it's too like Perth, it's too near Perth, <laughs> and it would have also pinned me in a, in a, <clears throat> doing a journalism degree, and I thought, just in case you don't want to do journalism, let's do something else. So there was a lot of... Uh, kickballic scramble you might say it wasn't really thought out yeah uh, i was kind of quite reactive rather than proactive you know my first job at uni was working with the proclaimers management you know they're they're, they're again another big figure in my life kenny mcdonald their manager i'd gotten to know him a wee bit because scottish music scene then as i'm sure it is still now to some extent it's pretty small mm-hmm. so you got to know quite a lot of folk quite quickly because i was writing for the cut I was doing a bit of newspaper writing while I was at uni. I was writing for The List as well. I was writing for Tenets Live News, TLN. I got to know quite a few folk, including Kenny McDonald, and he'd signed a new band called The Libertés, not to be confused with The Libertines. (laughs) The Libertés were a a country band from Scotland who got signed to Chrysalis, same label as The Proclaimers. And Kenny came into the pub where I was working at the time, Oddfellows in Forest Road in Edinburgh, and he knew I was graduating that summer, and he said, oh, when you you finish, do you fancy coming to work with me? He's my assistant kind of manager. I was like, yes. Uh, and I did that and ended up being like a, a kind of de facto tour manager to that band of Liberties that first summer at a uni, not knowing what I was doing, not knowing what a PD was, per diem, per diem daily right. allowance, driving his, his van around England, you know, Leicester, Princess Charlotte, Leeds, Duchess of York, <laughs> taking this band round, you know, just le- finding my feet, learning as I went. Still writing on the side, but learning as I went. And then when the Proclaimers came back with King of the Road in that time, I was mm. working with them, driving them a wee bit. Uh, so, yeah, I was learning as I went along, making it up as I went along, still writing on the side while I was working in the music management. But, yes, you're right, it was not It was reactive. I, wasn't, I didn't have a strategy. Uh, I guess if I was being generous to myself, I'd say I'd made my own luck. I kind of got myself in positions where I'd get these offers, but... I didn't have a careerist view of where I wanted to yeah. go. Have you ever read The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho? I have not. My favourite book. And yeah. basically the the whole concept, it's a fictional story, but within it it's interwoven as the principles of just following your, ah, such a cringy term, but following your bliss, whatever that is for you, and each day and not thinking too far ahead and not thinking, well, I'm at point A. Point Z is going to look like this because you can never quite navigate that yourself and it'll just never... It really, really happens. But if some, it, it's saying if somebody focuses on and what they enjoy, saying yes to opportunities, following your intuition, I suppose, then it'll take you exactly where you're meant to be, and you will get at the end of it your treasure. But the whole point is the journey's fucking brilliant anyway, and that kind of makes me think of that. So it's not. I bet if if you were to go back to 1990, <clears throat> excuse me, if you were to go back to 1990, you probably would have. Describe the way I see the way your career went or the things that you'd done. There's a high chance you would have said, "Yeah, I'd like to do all of these things," but to actually be able to construct that is is another thing. Yeah, none of these things seemed achievable to me, but I wasn't gonna 
uh, sit on my arse and sit on my hands and do nothing about it. I, I, I guess I was quite proactive. You know, I wrote to... I ended up reviewing for the Glasgow Herald as well, and I was reviewing for the Scotsman, and I was thinking, well, you kind of you kind of write for both of Scotland's big national newspapers, but turns out you could. <laughs> uh, I wrote to all three of the national music magazines that existed at the time, Vox, Q, and Select, uh, to see if I could review for them, because I thought, well, why'd you have to be in London to review records for these people? Mm. And it, I was aware that reviewing records was probably the way in to get into mags, magazines. Select never never wrote back they aired me uh, Q wrote back to me John Hazelwood great writer wrote back to me and said like your stuff but I need somebody to come into the office with the reviews on a disc that's how long ago this was <laughs> floppy disc yeah <laughs> and I was like okay fair play that's reasonable and then the guy at Vox Sean Phillips wrote back to me and says yeah yeah I mean literally wrote back to me because this was obviously before email yeah I love your stuff I need somebody to review Scottish albums I'm like fuck's sake, Scottish albums are all shite. I don't want to review <laughs> Scottish albums. Uh, but obviously I didn't say that. I went, yeah, brilliant, I'll do that. Um, <laughs> then go away, quietly seethe and work out how I'm going to manage to make that yeah, not make me want to kill myself. Because there was a lot of dross getting released in Scotland at the time. I won't name anyone, but there was a lot of pants albums, yeah. shall we say. But I ground my way through them because it was my way into Vox. And then luckily, we started making great records. Screamadelic and Bandwagon S came in, out mm. within about 12 months of each other, even closer than that, I think. And I got to review both of those because they were Scottish albums and that was my patch. And they were, they were bigger reviews in Vox. So I got to do those and then I got to do little interviews for Vox and bigger interviews for Vox. And then they started. They flew me to America to interview Crash Test Dummies. Wow! Uh, in Minneapolis, when they were supporting Elvis Costello, managed to get picked up by the cops because I got lost and was hitchhiking on the highway. <laughs> uh, again, days before mobile phones. And then I also wrote to the Face. Uh, the Face didn't seem like it was a magazine for the likes of us. It was yeah. cool, metropolitan London, you know, all that stuff. None of none of which I was. But I thought, sod this, I want to be in there as well. Um, and I wrote to them with some suggestions. And luckily for me, uh, the editor of the front section at the Times, a guy called Richard Benson, another really great writer and journalist, mm. <clears throat> a big figure in my career and life still. And he wrote back to me, said, yeah, absolutely agree. We should have more regional voices in the in the face. He's, he's from Yorkshire and is very proudly Yorkshire. Yeah. And so I was just spawny that my uh, pitch landed on his desk and he got me reviewing things, uh, writing about stuff from Glasgow in Scotland. I mean, I remember one of the first stories I did was about a dentist in Glasgow who had, I think, tricked out his waiting room or his surgery with like tropical fish tanks to make it all soothing and bougie. And that was a decent story for The Face. I did Irvin Welsh really early on for The Face, just before Trainspotting came out. Wow. Um, so again, I was I was lucky, but I guess I did I was proactive and I made that yeah. luck, and then it kind of went from there. So you're saying you're lucky. But you also mentioned was it? Q, did you say Q Magazine just patched you? Just didn't yeah. You? Q said we need somebody to come in the office with a disc. He said I like my, I like your stuff, but uh, I need somebody who's in London. Which you know, as as it was then, that was the case. Mm-hmm. I did end up writing for Q later on when I lived in uh, London as a freelancer. Yeah. So would you have had many? knockbacks or sort of setbacks or rejections as such because you could look you could easily look at your whole career trajectory and go it was just one success and one yes after another oh hundreds of rejections uh you know for every 
pitch that I land now as a freelance writer, pitching to the Daily Telegraph or the Times or the Observer or even the Standard Radio Times, you know, on paper, I have quite a good hit rate, I suppose. Still, luckily, God knows. uh, It's a tough time for journalists now, but I still get quite a good strike rate. But for every one feature I land, there's four that I didn't land. Yeah. And it was similar back then. Loads of things I went for that I didn't get. I didn't apply for that many jobs uh, because I didn't really want I didn't think I wanted a staff job. I mean, I moved to London because that guy, Sean Phillips at Vox, said he was launching a magazine called Blah Blah Blah, which was a collaboration between MTV Europe, which was then in its imperial phase, and an American magazine company called Raygun, who had a very cool magazine called Raygun. It was Mm -hmm. virtually unreadable. The graphic designer was David Carson, who went on to do opening titles for Seven for David Fincher. Brilliant, groundbreaking graphic designer. But uh, in terms of magazine readability, not the best, (laughs) but it was a beautifully stylish thing. So Raygun wanted to do a magazine with MTV Europe. They got the contract from MTV Europe, basically. So Sean asked me to apply to be his launch deputy editor, which I did and I got, and that's what moved me to London. And then after doing that for a year, and this is in, I mean, I moved to London on the 2nd of December, 1995. I'm coming up, I think in spring next year, if my maths is right, I'll have been in London longer than I was in Scotland, which is very psychologically troubling. Aye, that is, well. But um, but it was a great time to move to London because it was obviously in 96, Euro 96 was on. That was Mm -hmm. a great summer, obviously despite that inglorious day at Wembley, which I was at. I'm blaming him for that. Yeah, exactly. That was a great, I was at that there that day. Ended up up the night seeing left field of the Brixton Academy in my kilt. (laughs) Uh, So it was a great time to be in London. Obviously Britpop was booming. Yeah. And I learned a lot from Sean Phillips and from launching a magazine because we couldn't get access to Oasis, who were like the dog's bollocks at the time. So we had to be very uh, tangential and creative in our thinking. I think to get Oasis, I went to see them in somewhere in Pennsylvania and just hung about the venue and reviewed the show and talked to some fans and tried to get a word with Liam at the dressing room door, which I think I failed at. Um, You'd yeah, think, you know, all, all the way over in Pennsylvania, they'd have been somewhat receptive. Like, I know. Right, here's somebody very close to where we're from. Yeah, the PR just wasn't having it. But but the the first feature and the cover feature and the first issue, blah, 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 was I brought Damon Albarn back up to Edinburgh to go on the on a tour of Irvin Welsh's Edinburgh, which basically meant going on the piss in Irvin Welsh's Edinburgh. Yeah. <laughs> so me, Irvin and Damon and my then girlfriend went on the Randan round Edinburgh for the day which uh, ended up very messily uh, uh, in the back of a taxi and then at Maison in Edinburgh with me and my girlfriend having to put Damon to bed. He was so battered. <laughs> uh, but that was our first cover story for Blah 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 and it was a great thing to have because that was, that was pegged to the Trainspot and film coming out which obviously Blur were on the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was a great time to be in London and learn the ropes and then after a year of doing that Richard Benson at The Face, who I'd stayed in touch with, asked me to come and be features editor at The Face. And I was there for five years. I became deputy editor there and was there for five years. So again, it was folk I'd met along the way who'd been really you know, great, helpful to me, yeah. to whom I was very grateful, kind of came around again and asked me to do things. Um, so, yeah, I was proactive, but still I wasn't being careerist. It sounds like a totally well. It was a totally different time for journalism, but was it was that a period where there was just a lot of money and a lot of? I suppose it was the mediums aren't 
they weren't as vast as they are now. YouTube wasn't a thing. Commercial radio was probably pretty confined. So did these artists see it as, well, this is a very necessary thing for me as well? 100%. There was no internet. There was no mobile phones. Uh, there was no YouTube, uh, no social media. So, mm. yeah, print was still king yeah. uh, or queen. And... So yes, uh, getting a feature in a magazine was still hugely important to established artists, up-and-coming artists. So it was a great time to be learning uh, my so-called craft and being in London. And it was a boom time for British music as well. There was Aye. just loads of good stuff coming out. We were bossing it on the world stage. And there was money sloshing about as well. You know, you we at the face, you know, we got taken all around the world our writers got taken all around the world to interview people my job ended up being pretty much a glorified travel agent you know <laughs> speaking to journalists oh do you want to go to Thailand to interview Leonardo DiCaprio on the set of the beach well you do okay good um, I'll sort <laughs> that out for you that. <laughs> yeah I'll sort that out for you but then it also became uh, a case of me standing in my kitchen at midnight arguing the toss with Leonardo DiCaprio's PR about whether we were getting 10 minutes with him or 12 minutes with him. <laughs> so I was moving slightly further away from the actual coal face of writing. I was, I was editing features, but I was moving away. But yes, to answer your question, it was a boom time and we were lucky, certainly at the face and at, uh, to a less extent, blah, 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 people wanted to talk to us and they wanted to be in our magazine and, you know, I got to go to Madison, Wisconsin to interview Shirley Manson and the Garbage Lads for their second album. That was a nice full circle moment. Yeah. The last time Shirley and I had seen each other in Edinburgh before we both left was in the Dole office in Haymarket. Uh, we were both on our uppers. And then, you know, here she was, you know, the front woman of the greatest post-grunge band or yeah, post-grunge bands, I guess you'd call them, in America. And here's me being relatively successful as a writer. So there's loads of nice little bits like that along yeah, the way. I love that. It's funny that how have you have you found that throughout your sort of career and, and its progression that you've encountered a lot of the same people over and over and thought, how funny is that? You're now in a position of huge power, as am I, but we were both, well, we'll use the term nobodies at one point. For sure, you know, there's the and, and to quote the the mighty embrace, one of the also runs of the Britpop years, but I still say they were a great band. <laughs> the good will out. Uh, I think if you're a good person, not, you don't have to be necessarily a talented person, but if you if you're a good c word, uh, <laughs> then. A good you, chap, yeah, yeah, good chap. <laughs> then I think you will, you will, per, you will persist and pertain. And I, there's, there's still certain PRs and writers and uh, artists that I met way back then who are still doing it. I thought you're still doing it because you're good. Yeah, uh, you're not. You might not be the best at your thing. I'm certainly not the best at my thing. Nowhere near it. But uh, I think if you conduct yourself with humour and humility and general niceness then that goes a long way so yeah I think and that also persistence and talent and some folk are ragingly talented you know Shirley is ragingly talented mm. and uh, we've just interviewed her in the face where I, I work again now since it relaunched three years ago uh, we've just interviewed Shirley about her kind of style sense and the, the young writer who interviewed her who's like half my age half Shirley's age said it was the best interview and she's the best person he's ever met and mm. I think that's that's magic that you know Shirley F. Edinburgh is now really wowing this young, cool fashion journalism graduate who works in the face. Well, human decency and niceness never goes out of fashion, does it? Absolutely. And yeah, obviously, fundamentally, it's pop culture, it's rock and roll. Transgressive behavior behavior also has its place. You know, mm -hmm. you know, not obviously abusive or exploitative behavior, but you know, you know, 
you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll behavior. That is still the spirit, if not the actuality of, of what we do. So that, that has a place. But yes, niceness also mm-hmm. has a place. We, it, we, around about 2002, I have got, I've got all my tabloid questions I want to give you. <laughs> the very basic predictables. Give a story. What happened to you? Who was best with this? Blah, blah, blah. But leaving to, to go freelance and you in your words traveling the world in pursuit of musicians musicians and actors how did that sort of manifest itself so 2002 i'd been at the face for five years and i was deputy editor and my flat was he my flatmate at the time oh no we would my then previous flatmate was the editor and as is often the way at magazines when the sales start to decline or there's you know trouble up mill the editor gets it in the neck and the face had been published by an independent company called Wagadon founded by Nick Logan who's an absolute legend in magazine publishing invented smash hits reinvented enemy invented the face uh, invented arena so invented style magazines invented uh, men's magazines effectively invented pop magazines amazing guy he sold Wagadon to uh, EMAP and then EMAP in turn, was gobbled up by Bauer, the giant German publisher of... Like Heat magazine and all that kind exactly, of thing Exactly, Bella well. and Prima. A lot of women's mags and then Heat and then later Grazia. And that was at the time that FHM was in its imperial oh, face yeah. doing a million physical copies a month, which is beggar's belief. Uh, nuts came along afterwards as well, you're right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Nuts and Zoo were cast yes, in its shadow. Yeah. Um, so... So we got pressure from our new corporate overlords to make the face more commercial. And to my and the editor's mind, they didn't get the fact that the fact that the face got loads of fashion advertising was because it was a niche title. Yeah. It was meant to be underground. It was meant to sell considerably round about 100,000 copies or less. Uh, it wasn't meant to be a blockbuster FHM level magazine because mm. that was antithetical to what it was. Yeah. That's how we got the fashion advertising. To our minds, they wanted the fashion advertising and the blockbuster cover sales. They wanted both and they were... Uh, counterintuitive so we were under a lot of pressure to deliver more commercial covers the first one that we did under uh, EMAP's ownership was for the Phantom Menace now obviously nobody at the, new, at the time knew what a turkey the Phantom Menace was going to yeah. be we just knew it was the return of the most beloved sci-fi franchise in history and it was a huge moment for our readership we had to have that on the cover and we could not for love nor money get an interview with anyone but we knew we had to have it we also knew that EMAP expected it of us and we, we needed to deliver it and um, we couldn't get anyone we ended up buying in a press image of Natalie Portman as Princess or Queen Amidala and buying in a feature by an American writer two things we'd never done before and it was a dark night of the soul when we did that and thereafter it kind of declined you know the the, 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 the famous two-hander was we got pressure to get David Beckham for the cover just when he'd scored that goal against Greece to get to get England to the World yeah. Cup at Old Trafford is that, was, is that 2000? it would have been 2002 yeah, early well, 2002 right so the writing was on the wall for me and the editor Got to get David Beckham. We're like, really, David Beckham? He's a sports guy. He's got nothing to say for himself. Looks a bit dim as well. Get him. Had to get him. I got him. We did him on the cover. Shot him brilliantly. Covered, like, had his head shaved for us. And I had the mohawk. And then with, like, blood running down his face. I've seen that 
picture. I've seen that cover. Yeah, legendary cover. Yeah, pictures, blood running down his face. Actually, soy sauce. Uh, <laughs> we got the entire front cover of the Sun. We thought, great job done. Yeah. You know, we sat back in our seats and waited for the plaudits and the sales to roll in. That issue was nailed to the shelves. Nobody bought it. Uh, I guess because our readership thought this was a a step too far why are you doing a footballer on the cover of your magazine football was was kind of cool not quite the cool it's not the commercial entity it is now. no it not wasn't 20 years ago it no. wasn't so anyway nailed to the shelves the following month Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes was coming out again nobody knew what a turkey that film was going to turn mm. out to be but uh, Planet of the Apes uh, we had to have that on the cover because, again, a hugely beloved franchise for our readership. You know, a bathing ape, the Japanese brand, yeah. Pharrell, all these people loved that. James Lavelle, uh, Uncle and Mo Wax. All these people in our world loved the, the Planet of the Apes world. We had to get that. Again, couldn't get anyone, couldn't put any of the actors on the cover, Tim Roth or um, Helena Bonham Carter, because they were monkeys in the film. You could have them as a monkey on the cover and nor could you have them as an actor on the cover. <sighs> what a serial so, so what we had to do was the art department brilliantly found a collector in California who had one of the original ape heads from the original 1968 movie, 67, 68, and a space suit that like the one that Charlton Heston wore in the original one, stuck the monkey in the spacesuit, which again <laughs> was illogical because the monkeys weren't in spacesuits in the first film, but whatever, we'll do that. Yeah. That issue flew off the shelves. And we're like, we don't know what we're doing here. Uh-huh. The biggest guy in Britain doesn't sell a monkey in a spacesuit does sell. And it, we were just tearing our hairs out with um, frustration and not, not knowing how to crack what the magazine publishers wanted, but also what our readers wanted. Anyway, out of all that, editor gets canned. Uh, I get the opportunity to stay, but um, I I thought, no, I'm going to take the offer of a nice uh, payoff and go and be a journalist again, Mm because, as I said, I'd become a glorified uh, travel agent, and I wanted to get back to writing. So I left uh, to become a freelance writer and then just hustled to be a writer. I started pitching to all the newspapers and gradually built up a profile as a freelance writer for... The Times and the Telegraph and Radio Times and anyone that would have me. Yeah. A few things on that. See, we, we find it hard to find what the writers, eh, sorry, what the readers wanted and trying to strike that balance. Did that hammer at home to you that follow your instinct and your creative output should just be what you want to do as opposed to trying to crack the formula? I, I hear a lot of people often will ask me about say they want to do a podcast, but then they'll maybe say, oh, can I think of what people want to hear? Or I chucked it because I just felt as if I couldn't quite crack it. And I would always say, like, but just do, do creatively what you find interesting because then people will will attach themselves to it. Yeah. It's, there's, well, if you're a part of a team, an editorial team at a magazine, you do have to listen to your paymasters. You, know, yeah. you do have to follow what the publishers want. But you also have to serve your readership. And in the good times, those things are aligned. In the more challenging times, they start to diverge. And that's a problem. And... It was it was hard for us to square that circle. Mm-hmm. As a freelancer, when it's just you effectively, then yeah, you you I guess you can more truly follow your heart. So you pitch stories that you want to write about, or you pitch artists that you want to write about. At the same time, you know, real politic is never far away. You've got to be pitching the things that they're the editors and commissioning editors are going to want to commission from you and run in their papers or magazines. So it is again, it's a f- combination of following your heart, but also following your brain and you know there's, there's still plenty interviews and stories that I write now where I'm like nah I'm not really interested in this musician or film or teleprogram or actor per se but I found a way to make it interesting to me yeah. whether it's 
whether it's because of what the show represents or what the artist represents or the opportunity where I get to interview them, maybe it's an interesting location or place, finding the way to make the story work for me, even if it doesn't, you know, fill my heart with joy. So would there occasionally be an instance where somebody might look at you speaking to, or read something you've written, speaking to a really big name, and think, wow, what a unique angle. This guy's got a really interesting brain, and you're like, I just couldn't find fuck all interesting about this guy. Yeah. It's it's always about that's a win win though. Yeah, it's but you got you've got to be able to yeah th- think outside the box or if you can be quite surreptitious about that then it'll it'll just present itself as well. I'm a really unique. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess unique that guy. is the win. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, my tabloid questions because I've always just got loads of them. What is what is the standout moment? See, you're you're sitting in a bar. Everybody's swapping stories. What are yours for? This was a real fucking pinch me surreal moment. I spent two years with Phil Collins ghostwriting his memoir, uh, which was a great experience. You know, I first met Phil, I went to Switzerland to interview him for <clears throat> his what turned out to be his last album, an album of Motown covers. And I think I was doing it for the Telegraph magazine. So it wasn't a music magazine, it was a Telegraph magazine. So that's a lifestyle title. So they want stuff about his life and mm-hmm. private life. And obviously that meant asking about his... Uh, Divorce, marriages and divorces and I asked him probably one too many questions about his divorces and he told me to F off <laughs> uh, and I was like whoa calm down and then I thought you know a mini second later I thought hang on a minute yeah he's right who am I this sweet twat from Perth to come to his house in Switzerland you know one of only three artists in history to sell a hundred million albums as a member of a band and as a solo artist Phil Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney mm. Who am I to sit in his back garden and ask him intrusive, invasive questions about his divorces? So he's absolutely right to tell me that. Um, tell me to F off. And then, but he obviously didn't hold it against me because I interviewed him again in New York uh, for uh, the Mail on Sunday for an interview in which he revealed his alcoholism. Uh, and uh, at the end of the interview, he just, it just splurged out of him. At the end of the interview, he said, oh, thanks for that, Craig. You're really easy to talk to. And I, I didn't think any more of that until I was back home in London transcribing the interview and I heard him say that, oh, you're really easy to talk to. Thank you. And I was like, oh, thanks, Phil. And then I thought, has Phil done a book? Quick Google, Phil has not done a book as far as I can tell. So I emailed his manager who had I'd gotten, I'd had dealings with and suggested this and the manager came back. He's a kind of manager of the old school. A few words, not a bad idea. Let me ask him a few days later. Phil's into it, let's talk. <laughs> and that was it. I managed to pitch that we sold that book to a big publisher. I spent best part of two years following Phil wherever he was at the time. He was kind of hopping between his houses in Switzerland, New York, and Miami. Uh, I'd always try and meet him in New York because it was much more fun in Miami than than, than Miami was. Um, and we just did all these big, long interviews, in-depth interviews where I kind of talked his life out of him. Mm. And uh, that was a really uh, great experience for both of us. Uh, he came up with a cracking title, Not Dead Yet. <laughs> and uh, it was a bestseller on both sides of the Atlantic. He then went on to do a tour in support of it called Not Dead Yet Live. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then he did another tour, I think, called Still Not Dead. Dead. <laughs> um, so it was uh, that was a great experience. And he's still a pal now. That's amazing. Wait. Does, does, does he then, or does that put you in the orbit or the sort of awareness of other people who kind of think, I would like, they see the success of it, think I would like to achieve something similar? 
I would like to have hoped that would have been the case, Sean, but it's not happened so far. It's been a weird few years, though, so <laughs> give it time. Give I, it time. I, I do want to do another memoir, uh, ghostwrite another memoir, because uh, it was a great experience, but I do think I was spoiled by Phil being my first one because A, he's a magic bloke, B, yeah. he's a superstar everywhere in the world, and C, he was retired and... Uh, didn't mind telling me where the bodies were buried mm. i.e. being forcefully candid about everything holding his hands up to the missteps and mistakes but also you know addressing the unfair criticism that he got in certain quarters so he was a, he was a very giving yeah. interviewee so I was I was lucky but I've also it's hard to find it's so far been impossible to find yeah. anybody to follow that with it sounds like he probably got a lot from it because over you say where the bodies are but bodies are buried he's probably lived a life of excess at points and probably thought now is the chance for me to do my confessional yeah. to get it all out yeah and he did and he didn't think he I think he maybe didn't think he could remember a lot of stuff but I prodded him I did my research and kind of prodded him and say okay so Phil 1974 Genesis 2 Lamb Lies Down on Broadway oh I can't remember anything about that I said well you recorded it at Headley Grange wherever it was in Buckinghamshire and then you went on tour and he went oh yeah I remember and then the memories would come flooding yeah. out so it was it's an overused phrase, but I think it was cathartic for yeah. him. Well, who, if you could pick one, I'll give even two if if need be, because I'm feeling that generous this Friday afternoon, Friday morning still. I, I'm conscious of your time, by the way. Um, if you could hold a gun to one or two people's heads and say, you're coming with me, am I going through that process? Who would it be? Stevie Nicks. Right, okay. I've interviewed Stevie a few times. I've been at our house in Malibu and... Uh, I think we've got a pretty good relationship with her. And That's she, fucking mental. <laughs> and uh, she has said previously that if she does a book, she'll do it with me. Now, obviously, she's Stevie Nicks. Who am I? Uh, that might not come to pass. I'm not holding my breath. Uh, I did hope that she might be ready to do a autobiography in times of COVID, uh, not least because she had nothing else to do and yeah. because, you know, Fleetwood Mac are still a going concern. That's, that's the issue there, I think. Yeah. Uh, and even though Lindsay Buckingham is now out of the band and Lindsay and the Stevie fault line is is the fault line within Fleetwood Mac, I think. Yeah. She's still not ready. I mean, maybe, who knows? Maybe she's already doing one with somebody else. Maybe I'm out of the loop now. No, but no, I do occasionally I send an email to a manager saying, ah, only me. Just wondering <laughs> if she's ready yet. I'm not dead yet. Oh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that's my goal. But if that came off, that would be a dream. But as I yeah. say, she might change. She may well have changed her mind already and there'd be something else afoot. I, w- of course, would hold no grudges against her because she could have anybody in the world to do her book. Uh, but if, if I got that, that would be a, a career Hi. Yeah, if she's ever looking for anybody to conduct a half-assed podcast, then tell her. <laughs> I'll put a word in. Tell, tell her to come, come down to Pacific Key in Glasgow, we'll make you tea, coffee, anything. <laughs> yeah, I heard uh, Harry Styles, interestingly, Pally with Stevie Nicks, because of course he is why wouldn't he be, um, and he said that she lived nocturnally, like her and her pals, and they would only come to life at like fucking one in the morning. Stevie is a, a lady of the night, not, not in that way. <laughs> to be clear, she does stay up to the through the wee hours, uh, writing poetry, watching Game of Thrones. Uh, she is uh, quite something. I mean, one of the well, yeah, she, they're really good pals. I mean, actually, one of the and a pinch me moment for me was when Fleetwood Mac played Wembley in summer nineteen. Uh, we went along to that, and then I went backstage to the dressing room to say hello to Stevie, and and Harry was there. Yeah, with his mum. With his mum, wearing uh, the face had, was about to relaunch, or it just relaunched. 
Gucci had a, a, a limited edition range of uh, branded merch. Wow. And they had a face Gucci hoodie that Harry was wearing. No so way. I got a picture of me with Harry wearing this face top, Stevie Nicks photobombing in the background. That is, it's, that, that, is that was a pinch me moment. How do you, how do you come back to reality or do you just constantly live in this stratosphere of oh this is how life is um, I don't take any of it for granted ever but also you know these folk are, are stating the obvious they're mortal they're just like us yeah. uh, and I never I don't I'm never really starstruck because I've met so many folk and been so many places with them you know that occasionally I'm starstruck you know travelling around South Africa on a private jet with Jay-Z I was quite starstruck there so much so that he, he wouldn't he didn't even talk to us to the very very end of the whole trip there's certain moments where you're like I can't believe I'm here and you have to remember it um, but equally generally you got to also remember that you're doing a job and you need to be taking in information from every angle you know assimilating what you're hearing what you're seeing what you're smelling mm -hmm. all this stuff so um, it it doesn't none of that goes goes to my head because it it it, it can't because I go back to a normal life with my, my family in London and yeah. and I'm only in these folks orbit for a wee while anyway it's not like mm. I'm on tour with Harry Styles for six months uh, I'm 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 going to see his show for ninety minutes and then I'm out of there or, I mean I've I've not interviewed Harry but I've, I say I've met him in that dressing room um, you're only there for a wee bit. You know, and never be under any illusions that they're your pals. Some mm -hmm. of them might become semi-pals or acquaintances, but uh, I never uh, lose my head and think, oh, yeah, I'm here because I'm the dog's bollocks. I'm here because I'm the latest person that's interviewing them. Aye. See, I, I think I would keep my cool and keep a grip on reality because even if I was on a private jet with Jay-Z, when everybody turned away, I'd still be grabbing a couple of sugars and putting them in my bag because I always just get a wee sense of victory. Oh, I. And then I'd be I still like, do that. I, and then I'd be like, listen, mate, you might be on a private jet, but you're still fucking bumping sugar. You're, you're Trump. <laughs> but see, that and ketchup, mayonnaise, and uh, peri peri salt, Fernandos, you can, I just I take as much as I can. I'm with you. I did it in my hotel last night. Did you? Where are you staying? <laughs> uh, just over the road in the, I better not tell they might come after me. All oh, right. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. You tell me later, you can, like, you can mime it. Give me that ketchup back. Um, now back is, as we round up, rejoined, uh, we relaunched Face as consultant editor. So is it is it in the online sphere strictly now? It's still a print magazine, but it's now quarterly instead of monthly. Right. So it's four a year, if you do the maths. I'm good at maths. Well done. Okay. Um, but yeah, the the bread and butter, the backbone is uh, the, the online uh, the website we know we put three or four stories up a day on the website I rejoined it when it relaunched in 2019 after a 15 years spa break whatever you want to call it hiatus <laughs> um, they asked me to come back uh, and I came up with the title of consultant editor which um, I usually say it means me being in the room with a bunch of folk half my age and twice as cool <laughs> which is what it is uh, and the idea was that I'd be there as a wrinkly repository of the brand values of the old face right, okay. and help the younger team uh you know mainline them for a new generation obviously what happened within about two days is i started learning more from them than they did from me uh, because they are the digital generation they're digital natives so i yeah. i learned a lot but probably not enough about digital journalism from them and i'm still there now uh, on a kind of part-time basis bit of mentoring younger writers editing commissioning writing a lot of stuff generally being involved with the nuts and bolts of it mm -hmm. and it's brilliant it's been energising to be back as part of a team after 
17 years Billy No Mates freelancer life, you know, sitting on my Todd in trains, planes, and cafes with my headphones on. There's something to be said about working with people, isn't there? Like yeah. post COVID, I worked remotely from 2017 up to up to COVID basically. And I remember having maybe up to 2019. And when the world kind of went to remote working and everybody's like, oh, this is the future, I was like, it fucking it. Like, <laughs> you'll enjoy it for six months and then I'm telling you, you'll be dying to get back to yeah. to being around people. And obviously that seems to be where you thrive. Yeah, I like being around folk. I didn't think I did because by the time we all left to face it, it had become pretty intense. We were all burnt out because uh, we were working hard and partying hard. It was the 90s. Uh, so I didn't think I wanted to be part of a team again, but actually it has been energising and working with young folk has been really revivifying for me. Mm. I couldn't do it full-time and I, I don't do it full-time. As I say, I do it maybe half the week and that's kind of in the office a couple of days in the middle of London. Mm. But I'm still doing all my freelance stuff for, again, anyone that will have me and still... You know, I'm not travelling nearly as... Nothing like what I was before COVID for, for obvious reasons, mm. but you know, before COVID, I was going to America on average once a month every year uh, doing interviews uh, which was brilliant but obviously adversely impacted my family I think in retrospect but that's not travelling like that hasn't come back and won't come back post-Covid but I'm still getting out and about interviewing folk and going to meet folk and I still thrive on that human connection you know that's I got into this in the first place not to live my life mediated through a screen I got into it because I liked going to gigs and meeting folk and interacting with them and going to screenings and and interviewing people in the flesh that human interaction and empathy and connection was fundamental to why Mm. I liked music because of what it does it gives us that connection same with film and telly and so getting that again now it still keeps me energised I think based on I think people will pick up on this and based on just that level of passion I suppose I'd say for everything that you're doing um, comes across in your writing so I would recommend if anybody enjoys sitting and having a wee read to just go on your muckrack and just look through everything because there's some fucking brilliant stuff <laughs> even in the last three months you're like oh there's that Luke Evans actor Bono like all these other people it's like you're not talking just shit we'll be here all day um, trying to go through all the big names um, I suppose first of all thanks very much for for sitting in I, I really really do appreciate it I have really enjoyed it and the only thing I will say is Craig McLean when I grow up I want to be just like you <laughs> thank you very much Sean it's been a pleasure and a privilege thanks cheers, for having mate. me and cheers. thank you for listening as always and we'll be back with another episode of Blethered soon cheers Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series including Talk Media, Natural Wonders, You Could Start a Fight in an Empty House, Talking Dairy Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug and Old School. All on the Big Light, Scotland's podcast network. From the Big Light Studio.